0: It's not going to be just humans colonising space, it's going to be life moving out from the earth, moving into its kingdom, and the kingdom of life, of course, is going to be the universe.
1: The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts, here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Holy moly. Do you know who that was, Jamie? I do know who that was, and I'm very excited that we're
0: talking about him. It's Freeman John Dyson. Freeman Dyson, who unfortunately died this week. He died this week. Rest pretty in peace. Pretty old, though. Pretty old. He, he had a good innings. Absolutely but he, he apparently he had a fall and didn't quite recover. So. Yeah, bless him. Well, what an incredible legacy. Do you want to talk about
1: him? Yes, please. You, you do know he was English, don't you? I do, yeah. A lot of people think he's American, don't
0: they? Yeah. I mean, he moved to America as, as a sort of young adult. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, no, born in, born and educated in here in good old Blighty. Good old Blighty. Went to Cambridge University, of course. Of course. Bit of a high flyer. Everyone loved him. But ever since the age of four, he was sort of buried in encyclopedias and things like that. So mm. he... At the age of four, he calculated the number of atoms in the sun. Was that the sort of thing you were doing at the age of four? <laughs> I do not think so. I mean, you know what I was doing at 21, let alone four. <laughs> so, yeah, well, one thing that he did, that actually, he did similar things later in life. But, yeah, well, he, during the war, the Second World War, hmm. he developed analytical methods for calculating the ideal density for bomber formations <laughs> to bomb German targets. Wow. So, yes, he was using his maths brain in war. And he, he also did things like remove gun turrets from the bombers because um, they would go slower, even though you would have the ability to shoot down your enemy. Mm. Uh, it made you slower. So, in actual fact, he, he showed the maths that uh, you were losing planes rather than keeping ca- planes. So God damn very important stuff. Very important indeed. Uh, I love this Stephen. So uh, while he was at Trinity Cambridge, he had a colleague, the the genius that is Stephen Weinberg. Hmm. He described him as as this, and I think this probably is just about the best quote for Freeman Dyson you could have. I have the sense that when consensus is forming like ice hardening on a lake, Dyson will do his best to chip at that ice. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. I think that sums him up, really. I mean, what else would you want said about you if that's uh, that's the way you were? Brilliant. Now, one thing I didn't realise is just how important his relationship with Richard Feynman was. I didn't know this. No, so in 1947 when he moved first moved to America, to Cornell University, um, he met mm. a very young Richard Feynman who, who he's clearly absolutely enamoured by. I was reading some of his uh, letters last night about Richard Feynman and to Richard Feynman. He basically just describes yeah. Richard Feynman as this, you know, unbelievably excitable character who's just working through problems and he sort of says of him that he's never seen someone work out so many problems in such short a time it's just like incredible so he's totally uh, amazed by Richard Feynman and Richard Feynman of course has has developed these Feynman diagrams but it's actually Freeman Dyson who works on Feynman diagrams because he can see the importance, but everyone else is just ignoring it despite Feynman's kind of hard push to sell his diagrams. Uh, But, uh, yeah, he manages to uh, put it in simpler terms but also show that it's equivalent to the work of some other scientists and actually brings them all together. And those three scientists go on to win the Nobel Prize. so, uh, yeah, it, it's actually Dyson's work that popularises Feynman's work and the, Dyson's version of it was actually more popular for a bit so they were known as Dyson graphs rather than Feynman diagrams for a bit. God, that's nuts. I had no idea. He's a very important character just in terms of his contribution to physics and maths but, of course, there's so much more to uh, Dyson than that. In fact, it's one of the reasons he puts down for why he didn't get a Nobel Prize himself because a lot of people are saying, you know, how on earth is Freeman Dyson managed to go through life without getting a Nobel Prize? Dyson mm. himself said this. He goes, I think it's almost true without exception. If we want to win a Nobel Prize, you should have a long attention span, get hold of some deep and important problem and stay with it for 10 years. That wasn't my style. <laughs> I
1: like it. I like it.
0: Yes. He got involved in all sorts of things. So he became a US citizen after returning from Birmingham University, which he had a little stint at for a bit, went mm. back to Cornell and then on to Princeton. And because he proved Oppenheimer wrong, uh, he Oppenheimer essentially gave him a lifelong a lifelong seat at Princeton university, which he did actually stay there for pretty much his entire career. He worked on nuclear rockets, the Orion program, and he hoped that that would put men on Mars by 1965. So Uh his, his timelines even more ridiculous than Musk's. He even thought that men would get to Saturn by 1970. Um, But he scuppered the project kind of himself by, being um, part of the the panel that came up with the partial test ban on nuclear oh. weapons, which of course meant that they couldn't, they could only test nuclear weapons underground, which yeah. meant that you couldn't do the testing for Orion that obviously needed to be above ground. So right. uh, yeah, that's that's the end. God oh, damn. He worked for a mysterious military. Um, or defence group called Jason, J-A-S-O-N, uh, for a long, long time doing lots of stuff, including climate things. Now, it's the climate thing, I think, that I'm going to have to veer away from Dyson. I do not right. agree with a lot of his views on, on climate change. Right. Um, but he worked for the Space Studies Institute, which, of course, was uh, Gerard O'Neill's um, club. Hmm. And... But here's another curious thing that he wrote once. He wrote, ESP is real but cannot be tested with the clumsy tools of science. Wow, okay. Yeah, again, it's Dyson uh, doing his best to chip at the ice. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Which which when it comes to climate science has an extra layer of irony in there. I think Mm. it's almost a really good example of someone who's exceptional at maths and physics but may not actually fully understand the scientific method i don't i don't i know that that's absolutely ridiculous of someone like me to be sitting mm. here having a go at freeman dyson but it does seem a little bit ridiculous someone could say esp is real despite there being absolutely no evidence for it whatsoever yeah that does seem to be counterintuitive <laughs> It does, doesn't it? It's a bit weird. Mm. Um, But, of course, Dyson gave his name to loads and loads and loads of stuff, like the Dyson Sphere. You've heard of the Dyson Sphere, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hell, yeah. But I bet you, have you heard of the Dyson Tree? No, not the tree. That's a genetically engineered plant that grows inside a comet to help humans living inside the hollowed-out comet travel inside it as a kind of habitat Whoa. in the outer solar system. That's deep. Yes, he also proposed that if you if if you were sort of wandering around Jupiter, it's not entirely unrealistic to see frozen fish just floating around because he's saying one of the easiest ways, instead of drilling down into Europa, for example, hmm. to see if there was life. Oh, is I don't for me started a... on that. No, well, wait for a big impact and some of that, Life that's in the water should be sprayed out by that impact and instantly frozen in the vastness of space, kept pristine. So, there should be evidence of the life in the frozen water around in one of Jupiter's rings, for example. It might be fish, giant fish. They might find a frozen whale up there, Jamie, or a frozen oh, squid. My, my beloved whalens. Oh, well, I mean, it's quite an image. <laughs> So yeah, there's image. there's there's some there's some there's some other cool things like the Dyson's eternal intelligence, which I actually first heard about, uh, I think, on Isaac Arthur. It's, it's such a cool scenario, the Dyson scenario, where basically mm. near the end of the universe, where the universe is suffering from heat death, instead of like panicking, what a a, a immortal group of intelligent beings could do is basically slow down their perception of time so that each billionth of a second seem like a year, for example. And so well, you could okay. stretch out the last few years of a of of the universe and make them seem like they go on forever. But Matt, who wants to live forever? Freddie Mercury once sang who dares to live forever, Jamie. (laughs) But he may have, get this, he may have averted war, nuclear war in Vietnam. So a lot of the US generals were saying, well, why don't we just chuck in a nuke every now and then? That should uh, put a cat amongst the pigeons somewhat. Uh, And he was a bit horrified. So he wrote a paper saying exactly why you shouldn't do that outlining the maths behind it and saying it probably is in no-one's interest to uh, chuck nukes into Vietnam. It will be counterproductive.
1: Bloody hell. I mean, it was a disaster as it was. Can you imagine if they added that? So, yeah, well done, Mm. Dyson, for that.
0: Yeah, so overall, he's an absolute legend with lots of insanely interesting things to do, and he furthered human knowledge immeasurably and uh you need mavericks like dyson in the system don't you to always you absolutely do shipping at the ice chipping Stopping at the consensus ice. stopping consensus becoming uh ideology i think i think that's the best way of seeing seen it so it really yeah is. i absolutely well, love i love Freeman dyson despite his that's brilliant. rather dubious beliefs on certain subjects well we all have our little things don't we yeah Yeah, absolutely, Jamie. I mean, if we
1: can all be inspired to chip away at the ice, then that's a bloody good thing. Yeah, if we could all
0: be a little bit more like Dyson, then that would be great. I think it would be great. He's obviously a very lovely chap as well. Very, very modest. Yes. Self-effacing, yeah. It's what come across in his letters about Feynman. It was very good. Do you know whose birthday it is today as the podcast comes out? Born in 1937, the great Valentina Tereshkova. First woman in space? The first woman in space. Still the only solo female spacefarer as well. OMG. Well, happy birthday. Yeah, I saw the Vostok 6 capsule when it was at the Science Museum. Uh, back in 2016 at the Cosmonauts ex- exhibition very excited i was i, I in fact wow. literally shaking when i was seeing it um science museum jamie we can now we can now spread the news 25th of march 25th everyone should come down
1: 25th of march put it in your
0: diaries we'll be and there come down and uh, have a little chat with us at the interplanetary podcast stall we are going to do a live
1: show we'll have our little Little stall. We might yeah. even have some. What will we have there, Matt? Are we, I mean, dare I ask, are we going to have any merch?
0: Oh, merch. Now that is, if I can order the merch just, just in time ed, and it just, can arrive just edit time. this out
1: if we don't, if, we, if that's possible Well, no,
0: no. I'll try and get some, I'll try and get some interplanetary mugs. They We can definitely get yeah. them here on time. So yes, some, some interplanetary mugs. mugs will definitely be available. There's no point in me getting merch because you need all the different sizes and different Well, what styles. other reason
1: do you need to come down to the Science Museum than the chance of having an interplanetary mug?
0: And not only that, a chance of being on the show. If you are a Patreon, definitely come down because we'll definitely have you on this on the show. Oh my we'll god. Have a yes, chat with you. Please do. So all the all, all the spodcats, please come down. And uh, yeah, hope really hope to see you. Because there's gonna be there's gonna be space rocks are gonna be there. There's loads of really, really exciting stuff, including about three or four of our previous guests are coming down as well. So it's gonna be absolutely amazing. Definitely, the gang's all gonna be there. So I'm, get I'm really excited. 25th of March, see you in a couple of weeks Actually, here's something really cool about Valentina Tereshkova She married a cosmonaut from Vostok 3, the third Russian in space And they had a daughter, Elena Andrianova Nikoliva Tereshkova Wow! And she's the first person to have a mother and a father who had travelled into space it's a bit annoying, cool. isn't it? If you are a kid, yeah. Well, Mum, Dad, what have you done? Well, we have been into space. Yeah, both of us, <laughs> both of us. So eat in your a greens. time where virtually no one has been into space, wow. Do you know what yesterday, uh, Wednesday was, Jamie? Was the fiftieth anniversary of Britain's rocket, the Black Arrow, the second Black Arrow that successfully achieved a suborbital flight. That's a good name as well, isn't
1: it? Black Arrow. The Black Arrow. Something out of Lord of the
0: Rings or something. To the last space conference I went to, I talked to um, Black Arrow, which is going to be a sea launch rocket. Oh, really? Which, uh, should, yeah. I've got a space conference today where I should be talking about the subject of Space Word of the Week. Here we go space manufacturing two words of the week do you want a little bit of history about space manufacturing yes please we've talked about this on on the show before cuz i thought i think we talked about georgie shonin as an astronaut of the week and mm. just a little bit over 50 years ago georgie shonin and valery gubersov were an unhappy crew. Remember, we were saying that they were in their Soyuz 6 capsule. Uh, they'd failed to video Soyuz 7 and 8 dock, because that was the whole purpose of the flight, was mm. them to video these, the other two Soyuz spacecraft docking. And this is only a short while after the Americans had managed to land on the moon. So the Russians had let their lead in the space race suddenly evaporate away. Mm. They're a little bit depressed and they're sitting back there and they're about to do something very significant but almost totally catastrophic. I mean, this is almost unbelievable. So, Mm. uh, Valery Gubasov, he's reached for some of his welding equipment to carry out an experiment uh, trying out various welding techniques and how space affects welding. And during one of the welds, he almost... (laughs) <laughs> burnt right through the hull of the ship. Yeah, that would have done it. Which would have been pretty bad news, being that they weren't wearing spacesuits at the time. Mm. That, however, could be considered a monumental leap in mankind's history because, for some, that is the first ever piece of space manufacturing. Totally is. If that Soyuz was the first workshop, then Skylab that went up in 19... 19- Seventy-three also spent quite a few time, quite a lot of time, about four working days devoted to space manufacturing, so welding, using a space furnace, growing crystals, melting metal, and igniting things, so setting fire to things and seeing how flame works in space. That would terrify me if I was up there.
1: It's like, oh, <laughs> yes. Jamie, just pass Shall me we that start fire?
0: burner, would you? Uh, Yeah, it's a little bit scary, isn't it? The Space Studies Institute again, remember we were saying that old Freeman Dyson was a big part of the Space Studies Institute. Well, they, right early on when they first were founded in 1977, um, started taking space manufacturing really seriously and had a biannual conference on the subject alone. From 1977 onwards. So it's starting to get a little bit serious. ESA pioneered the Space Lab, which of course went up in the shuttle, in the cargo bay of the shuttle, which then went on to become, well, basically that was the basis for things like the Columbus module of the ISS, which of course we've we've walked inside the mock up of when we we went to to Germany. Yeah. No, when we went to Holland. Holland. Yeah, Holland. We no, we walked through the ATV mock-up when we were in Germany, which was, which actually is based on the same it's ah, very similar yes, to Space right. Lab as well. So all those things are actually all connected. Yeah. So Columbus has uh the material science laboratory on board and the fluid science laboratory. So those are both really important when it comes to studying space manufacturer. But there are a couple of commercial ventures, and we've talked about one of them before, Made in Space, uh, when I mentioned their Z-Blan fibre optic. So Z-Blan is a type of fibre optic cable that's incredibly more efficient than normal fibre optic cable, but you have to make it in zero G. (laughs) So um, Uh. it's likely that when Made in Space made their Z-Blan fibre optic cable on the International Space Station, and then sold it. That that is the first example of a commercial space manufacture. So that has to go down in history. Definitely has to. Probably uh, talk about this in more detail on another show, and that's their Arkinaut spacecraft, which is which, which is which is basically the backbone of uh, in space production for making large telescopes, uh, repurposing spacecraft, robotic assembly of new space stations, that kind of stuff. So they, they're they ground testing that, and they expect that to go up in 2022 on an electron rocket. So a fully uh, commercial new space endeavour there. But there's also another company called Tethers Unlimited oh, yeah. that has a refabricator aboard the ISS. Basically, that takes... All the recycled plastic and turns it into filaments for the 3D printer, uh, and they're oh, all clever. Yeah, that is clever, isn't it? And that, and they're also testing a similar technologies for building in space as well. So it seems that Tethers Unlimited and Made in Space are having a little race about who can be the first, com- you know, proper commercial company in space manufacturing. Well, Matt, I mean, healthy competition, you know.
1: Lennon and McCartney, I'm
0: just saying. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So, Jamie, why would you want to build in space? Well, various reasons.
1: Should we go through them? Yeah, yeah, hit me. I mean, space offers unique environments that can allow for certain industrial processes that can't be done on Earth,
0: Matthew. I mean, surely you know this. Here's a little bit of a downside. If you want the large infrastructure in space, you have to get... Currently, you have to get all the materials up there, right? So that's a little bit expensive. Mm. How much are we talking? Oh, about... Currently, well, Elon Musk reckons it's about 2,500 quid per kilogram on Falcon 9. Well, that's not too bad. No. Uh, But one thing you can do in space is get the raw materials from things like asteroids and the moon. At a lower price, so that that's something we'll have a look at in a second um okay but, but here's a good one, Jamie you could do really dangerous things in space that you wouldn't really want to do on earth in case you damage the environment okay this is the element of space manufacturing that I think Jeff Bezos is very you know keen on as a follower of O'Neill Gerard O'Neill. Uh huh. Which I totally dig, but it's all about how you actually make this happen. Uh, it's the transition from low-scale manufacturing at high prices to higher volumes at lower prices. It's how do you make that transition? Ah, um, very true. So it's it, it's you have to have. Enormous capitalization costs, so governments have to get involved. But at the moment, it's the cost of getting stuff up there. So, as I said, it's two and a half thousand pounds on a Falcon Nine to get a kilogram, a bag of sugar, up into space. So, so
1: Matt, I've just uh, while you've been talking there, I've just been. I was curious to think. I wonder how many kilograms I weigh, and so I weigh about ten stone. Mm-hmm. I think about seventy-five. Se-
0: um- 75- Send me God.
1: That's sixty, k. just over sixty-three kg. So
0: that's
1: really? one hundred and fifty. Oh wow, just just under just under one hundred and fifty-eight k to send me up, Elon. If you're listening, I mean that's small change for you, mate. Yeah, it's 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 significantly cheaper to
0: get you up than it is to get me up.
1: Oh well, I mean, just you know, and and I could do so much
0: more than you, Matt, up there. The, the weird thing is, like, that's just going for a Wii before you go on your space flight actually saves so much fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Elon it's, would be like, "Come on, mate, just have a squeeze." But I don't just, need it, Elon. By doing a Wii on the space station, you're bringing up some water, so it's it's actually not that big a saving after all. Yeah. Pros and cons. Here's the good news for everyone in space manufacturing. Mm. Elon Musk has boasted that Starship is an order of magnitude cheaper than falcon nine to get stuff into space which would bring oh. it down to 250 pounds per bag of sugar what? into space which is <gasps> even cheaper than you could ever get a space elevator so if that is true the space elevator now is a completely there's just no point talking about it well i've gone down to 15 grand yeah, so yeah, suddenly it's actually quite cheap to get you into space. That might be the, the price point that where all the governments turn around and say, actually, it is now worth spending enormous amounts of capital to get this ball rolling, to get the heavy capitalization. Definitely uh, strong wind, surely yeah, to start assembling the mining and manufacturing facilities. And once all that's paid for, then once you get production that's economically profitable and self-sustaining. Then that's going to be more attractive to entrepreneurs, and that's when the whole thing starts spiralling into uh, a much more likely scenario. Well, Matt, talking about scenarios, would you mm. like to know
1: about what is special uh, to do with the environment? Yeah, well, and what... when I say environment, I mean I mean specific differences between the properties of materials made in space compared to Earth. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Hit me with some. All right, so first up, microgravity environment, Mm -hmm. control of convection in liquids or gases, and the elimination of sedimentation. Diffusion allows otherwise immiscible materials to be intermixed. Enhanced growth of larger, higher-quality crystals in solution. What do you think about that?
0: Well, it's the crystals one that's really, really interesting because that allows you to make... To, to look at proteins and grow proteins as larger crystals, which then allows drugs companies to, to more efficiently test drugs and bring drugs to market. So that's actually enormous, the crystals That's one. big, that one, isn't it? When you hear about them growing crystals, you think, oh, come on, it's not that big a deal. And then you read about actually why that's important. It's actually very, very cool. Yeah, well if you grow a crystal, if you grow a protein crystal large enough, you can see how the protein itself is structured. Which, which is Jamie, very, very sad. exciting. Ultra clean vacuum of space, I should imagine, Jamie, is a particularly Here useful we go side effect of being in space so you can make very very pure materials one thing you can't do on earth anymore is make steel without it containing a little bit of radiation from all those nuclear tests Mm. back in the 60s and 70s but of course you could do that out in space you can also do a type of 3d printing called vapor deposition uh, that you can build up materials layer by layer free from any defects so things Jeez like gra- graphene might might be a vapour uh, deposited, for example, so you could build sort of larger structures of graphene.
1: Well, do you know what else is great, Matt? Surface tension. Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, so ca- causing liquids in microgravity to form perfectly around spheres, which obviously is great for creating consistent spherical components, but
0: not so great for pumping liquids around. But they must understand that, that stuff really well by now with all satellites and all that kind of crazy paper. Yeah. yeah. But, of course, i tell you what, Jamie, you've also got your extreme heat and cold, which is a problem for uh, some. Yeah. A dream for others. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so you've got sunlight, which is obviously very bright out in space because you haven't got an atmosphere between you and the sun, and that can be focused mm. and so you can melt stuff, but also you can put things in perpetual shade. And it's, when it is in perpetual shade, it almost goes down to absolute zero. And you can use that temperature gradient, which can be right next to each other, like boiling hot to freezing cold, because there's no atmosphere to retain the heat. And you can use that gradient to make really strong glassy materials, like ceramics and things like that. Super interesting, isn't it, to think about, you know, what the future of construction is in space. Yeah, well, of course we got got some pr- pretty significant hurdles. I mean, here, here's the is the one that I always think is is the biggest one, and that's actually mining itself. So mining raw mm-hmm. materials. It's obvious that we can't really start just sending stuff up into space because it's so expensive so environmentally damaging and stuff so we really don't want to be doing that all this, especially considering all those materials are already yeah. in massive abundance out in the solar system so you've got to go and get these materials but Jamie when you think of a when you think of mining you're thinking heavy and large right you never think of kind of yes i am thinking of a big drill everything's huge how do you get these raw materials from space and uh, do you do you go and get the raw materials and bring them back somewhere to a factory or do you build the factory at the source of the material so i do you put a factory in earth orbit and then get all the raw materials to it or do you build your massive factory next to an asteroid for example so that, that, that you've got a couple of choices there Interesting. I mean, I guess the
1: question there goes to are we going to be using whatever that is being built in space or are we bringing it back to Earth?
0: Well, yeah, I suppose you could bring the raw materials back to Earth as well. But I think this is more about bringing the raw materials to a factory in space and building stuff in space so that you can use all these advantages that space has, like not in damaging the environment of Earth and all the other ones that we've said. And then you can send those products down to Earth or maybe to other space stations and stuff like that as you expand out into space. So having a base on the moon I think is actually um, really, really cool. So you've got asteroids at the moon and space junk, of course. You could actually go around using things like empty rocket shells and booster shells and stuff like that as your raw materials so there could be a a one of these in space manufacturers that goes up and starts cleaning up space junk as a source of raw materials that is a good call but it's very very difficult of course because it's traveling very fast it's 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 filthy as well covered in horrible chemicals like hydrazine and, and stuff like that so it's it's hmm. it's it's a difficult one but I think just the fact that it's the double whammy of cleaning up the junk and having you know obvious raw materials that you've spent a lot of money getting into space in the first place, it does seem worthwhile going to grab it as long as you've got the infrastructure to deal with it. I wish you'd clean up your junk sometimes. <laughs> well, I keep my house reasonably tidy, jamie power sources of course is 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 a difficult one. Do you go with solar mm. or nuclear? Which one are you going to go with? I'm going to go with solar. Hmm. Yeah, I mean I mean there is I suppose if you're near enough to the sun you can build if especially if you can build solar panels from in-space resources. So if you yeah. can work a way of just grinding up an asteroid or grinding up uh moon regolith into solar panels, then you're away. That's like a big that's a big potential thing there, right there, isn't it? Which grinding up your gases, your hydrogens, your oxygens, your, your liquid oxygens, your liquid hydrogens, your carbon dioxides, carbon monoxides, and all those kind of things. Hmm. Uh, which can be extracted from regolith and things like that. But that might be some of those things might be better if there's if they are flown up, depending on the efficiency of being able to do it. But Yes, we've talked about there's The low-hanging fruit currently for products, yes, are protein crystals. That seems to be a product that's um, right there, right now, or something that wafers, could be, uh, semiconductor wafers. Yeah, I like this one. Micro encapsulation. So you were just talking about these little spheres that form in microgravity. But if you if you have these fine droplets and then they coat themselves in a in a tiny shell, then you have micro encapsulation. Of course, that can be useful for lots and lots of things like medicines and really cool. Just rock itself, just going out and getting rock and and using it for radiation shielding, is is a pretty easy, a low hanging fruit. Water, of course, we've talked about water and the moon being the gas station of the solar system. So yes, you you can extract water from the lunar regolith. It's a little bit difficult and probably can only be done on a small scale initially. You can even use water as a propellant as well. It's got a very low specific impulse, but not terribly low. So steam rockets might be a thing out in the solar system where you don't need enormous thrust. You just need a little bit of specific impulse that was cheap. So it's also good at radiation shielding as well, water. Yeah, big time. Ceramics as well. So ceramics being made out in space, if you can come up with those techniques. Metals, of course, that's that's not, um, that's not a pretty obvious one. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. Ob- obviously, one big one is making propellants out in space so that hmm. you have like a gas station up in space that could go around refuelling very expensive satellites and things like that. So you could avoid having to keep putting new satellites up and watching your very expensive totally functioning satellites having to go in a graveyard orbit because they've run out of fuel.
1: Yeah, it's always a sad thing to see.
0: Yeah, I mean obviously space manufacturing could get to the point where you're building mega structures and space stations and things like that out in space. But I think we've got a long way to go till that until we get to uh, the expanse style um space yes. manufacturing. But a few more years. Space manufacturing is a really, really big deal, and I'm quite surprised it's more, really more people aren't sort of involved with it and, and sort of trying to get this done. Well,
1: thank God we're purveyors of justice for <laughs> <Poor laughs> materials in space. And, Matt, if you wanted to become a patron,
0: how would you go about it? Well, yeah, go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary or go via our website interplanetary.org.uk and yes you'll be able to find all about us and uh, have a look at some of the ways you can support this podcast and pay for my trips like going down to do space conferences and things we're just travelers in this world aren't we matt travelers on a on a rock hurtling through space at an unimaginable speed for those about to rock we salute
1: you absolutely absolutely It's my favourite ACDC song, Matt. little Mm. fact for you. Uh,
0: My favourite is Back in Black. Well, it's a classic. It's too good. Jamie, do you want to listen to my E. Scott Lindner interview about his new album In Flowers Through Space? Yes, please. It's not particularly spacey, but I know that spacey people love a bit of music, so it definitely fits in with our space playlist. It does. We could do with a break from space, so let's talk about music. Yeah, so here goes. A good day. Roll it. I am joined on the podcast by Scott Lidner and Adam Ahuja. Um, Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. How are you?
2: We're doing great. Great. Thanks Thanks so
0: much for having us. So whereabouts in the world are you before we before we start
2: yeah we're uh in new york city right now in long island city more specifically which is uh in queens right outside of manhattan and are you actually in your studio where you recorded the album we are yeah we're sitting right in front of the console right now uh with a laptop up on the uh on the console uh with skype so oh, fantastic uh what's the what's the name of the studio uh the studio is called pinch recording
0: I have to say, I've been looking at some of the pictures, and I absolutely love it as a space. You've got some beautiful uh, diffusion panels there as well.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, we built everything ourselves uh, with uh, our hands. So, you know, we didn't have contractors, so we literally built everything uh, by hand. So it's a handmade recording studio.
0: Oh, fantastic. So presumably, you're both quite geeky when it comes down to maths then, because I know a lot of... uh, a lot of things like the acoustic properties of diffusions are are pretty uh, funny and fun sequence numbers, modulo numbers. Uh, So uh, presumably, you you enjoyed uh, building the acoustic element of your space as well.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we worked with uh, an acoustic designer uh, named Crossley Acoustics uh, that are based here in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, they helped us kind of uh, figure out the best dimensions uh, and uh, for the sound. Um, and then within that, you know, building the the sound diffusion and the sound absorption and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We have a huge um, sound diffuser that's above the piano. It's about, I think it's like 11 feet by five feet or something like that. And we custom built that um, specifically to the dimensions of the studio for the sound. So we did some, sound, you know, shootouts in the live room Um, with uh, Signal, and we're kind of isolating some of the frequencies that we thought were issues, and then we we custom made that to the dimensions of the studio. So I am actually not great at math. I've always been really bad at math, but I surround myself with people who are very good at math, so they're like my calculators. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well,
0: yeah, I mean, it, it looks a beautiful space. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, so let's um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about your new album in flowers through space. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and, and the kind of overall theme
2: sure um yeah i mean the 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 album came out uh today february 28th and it's streaming everywhere um and you know i'm uh, very much of the mind of having some sort of a conceptual element to an album can really help um sort of form the album and give a real clear direction of of where we're headed so you know we came up myself and adam who's sitting next to me um sort of wanted to do something you know this is my third album and the other albums have done some some conceptual elements to it but this one was i wanted it to be very specific and i kind of wanted to figure out a way to use um some sort of uh mathematical um equation or construct or something that's you know widely known um as as a mathematical sort of um uh Fun mathematical thing, you know, that can be used mm. um, as a way to also promote the album that people are mystified by. Um, and Adam had kind of mentioned um, the Fibonacci sequence. Um, and, you know, I can let him talk about it um, a little bit more. How, how did that come about, Adam, with the whole Fibonacci thing?
3: Well, when I, it's funny. When I first learned about the Fibonacci sequence, it was via the golden ratio, which is uh, an element of the sequence. And when I was a kid, I was a big fan of Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and they played in our hometown. And at the end of the show, while everyone's packing up the gear, uh, the uh, future man was his name. He played the synth in the band, and the brother, Victor Wooten, would hang after the show and talk to us. We were teenagers, and he would talk about the golden ratio and how all the proportions on your face and on your body are of that ratio. And we were totally blown away, this this cool musician talking about these interesting principles. And then we went, went to the show a year later, and he did the exact same thing at the end. of. The, he started talking about the golden ratio as if it was like a replay of the year before. And just the fact that it happened twice was kind of funny to us, but it left a, a long-lasting imprint of what exactly is that? And... I just think it was incredible because you could see not only the body but you could see it in outer space, you could see it in flowers, hence the album title. And it was this it was this idea that permeates through a lot of things and it just seemed like a great place to apply those mathematical principles to music and we did that through various different incarnations whether it was the players, the album or how we translated the proportions of the ratio to the frequencies and the notes that then translate to scales used in the album and so forth. So, you know, um, we applied the Fibonacci
2: sequence to the record in a lot of different ways. The most, um, I guess, easily understandable and transparent way would be the number of players on each song. So what we did was um, we attached the number of musicians for the, for the number of, of the Fibonacci sequence. So it starts with zero. So you'll see on the first track of the record, it's zero. And it's actually just 10 seconds of uh, room noise. So we just recorded in the studio, just the sound of the room. The next uh, song has one player, um, which is just piano. The song after that has one player, because that's the Fibonacci sequence. So that's just a cello player. Then the next one uh, is two players, and then three players, and then five players, eight players uh, 13 players. And then the last song on the record, um, which is this huge, massive thing has 21 musicians. So we, you know, we aligned that with the Fibonacci sequence and that was kind of the start of how we, you know, and then we went deeper and deeper and deeper as to how much we applied the Fibonacci sequence, but that's generally the broad idea of what the album is.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting concept that, that tying up maths with another way of, um, another way of displaying a particular sequence you, you do realize you you're you're, f- you're following in the steps of the great Kepler who was kind of obsessed with these kind of sequences of of numbers and and kind of accidentally stumbled across his Keplian e- equations that basically outline how the uh, solar system works. so it's not like uh, <laughs> it's not like these things are a necessary fluteless did you did you do any kind of research into what other? musicians and what other people had done before with sequences of numbers, especially the golden ratio.
2: I didn't do that much research. I mean, I know that the band tool has used the Fibonacci sequence a lot in a lot of their, and a lot of their stuff, but you know, I wanted to keep a fresh perspective on it. I mean, I, I, I understood the general uh, idea of the Fibonacci sequence, but again, I'm not that great at math. So for me, it was a much more broad, um, you know, implementation of the sequence, but I also wanted to be very fresh and, and, and have my perspective on how that can translate to music. You know, one of my, um, ideas, cause I'm very interested in sound and sound waves in particular, and how that translates into notes. You know, one of the, one of the ways that we did, um, translate it was we took the actual frequencies, um, of notes and brought the, to the lowest audible frequency. So for example, if you take uh, 440 hertz, um, which is an A, and you take it down to the lowest audible frequency, which I believe ends up being 25, um, somewhere around there. And we use that as the starting point for the Fibonacci sequence. Um, a partner of mine, Jim, created a Fibonacci calculator uh, via um, code on the computer where you would take 25 hertz is a starting point, and then make a Fibonacci sequence out of that, and then find the closest musical note that would match up to those hertz, um, and then that creates a whole Fibonacci um, sort of scale in a way um, that you can lie on the piano um, within those 88 keys. You know, so that was one way you know to take sound, specifically, you know how many cycles a second a wave goes up and down, and translate it into the Fibonacci sequence.
3: Yeah, that was definitely one of the most interesting ways to give, I think, a lot of the musicians that came in some kind of scale palette to work with. And we found a lot of patterns out of those scales that we could use as tools to, to compose with, which was really interesting. And we would take those same ratios and apply them to whatever the, the keys of the songs were. So, for example, in the first piano track, after the track zero of Silence is track one and one, which is piano, and that one was all about setting that scale. And similar to um, thinking about uh, harmonics and the way that Eastern musicians use music, and you hear the natural harmonic series occur, we, and you can compress those tones down into a single scale, we allowed that so-called natural harmonic series of the Fibonacci sequence to take place on the piano on that first track. So what you ended up having was this scale that went root, root, fifth, third, root again. And as it goes up the piano, the next note was somewhere between flat six and six. Then it was somewhere between the third and the fourth. Then it was a flat two. Then it was a flat six. Then it was between the fourth and the flat fifth. And then that was literally the length of the piano that would allow that portion of the sequence.
2: So it was interesting to figure out like how, you know, these these notes actually ended up being between notes on the piano. So we, you know, as humans, we created this piano that actually like is is somewhat limiting when it comes to that, you know, cause we, we can't get the piano exactly where we wanted it. So that we'd had tape on all the notes that we could sort of use. And Adam would play with playing both the notes that- Right, those actual steps. Note, yeah, yeah, those half steps where, the note actually fell between the notes.
3: Yeah, sometimes I'll um, we'll play like a minor second, just right. play both the notes or kind of if it was leaning in the direction of one, I'd play that and kind of hit the other one instead of literally retuning the piano that would have been an arduous task. Right. So yeah. it's
2: it's interesting cuz you know there's definitely you you come up with limitations as to how far you can take it, but then you do the right. best you can to kind of fit it in within that construct.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's so you did you didn't attempt uh, doing yeah a, a non modern tuning on on the instruments that were on the record.
2: We talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in our heads. It mm-hmm. was in our heads, but I'd have to pay the piano tuner a lot more money. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, I think it would have been very interesting to go down that route. But it would have, I think, made it. Um, Almost impossible. I mean, I don't know, you know, because then, then when we're adding a lot of woodwind instruments, we're adding saxophone, we're adding bassoons, you know, we're adding um, trombones and synthesizers. And, you know, it's like, what is that going to look like when you bring in a saxophone player and you're like, okay, well, this note needs to be, you know, <laughs> between <laughs> six and flat six. Yeah, so like, you know, uh, we kind of had to run with with trying to keep it within those constraints, you know, mm-hmm. do the best we could.
0: Yeah it's a it's a curious phenomenon if you, if you get a if you actually have a group of singers in a room and they don't have any instruments accompanying them that they will actually harmonize exactly. harmonize closer to yeah the, the the not the modern tuning but actually the se- yeah the harmonic sequence of whatever key you're in so it's um yeah but, but oh, yeah but do, but, yeah, but, but doing true. it with saxophones and yep. things like that yeah i can see that that would be oh that's be,
3: really really interesting yeah. actually i didn't know that about the voice yeah yeah we we have that natural sense to want to go into those natural proportions those whole number increasing proportions of uh, like the it's you know one over two one over three one over four one over five. It's
2: interesting. How do we end up with these mus- How did we end up with these instruments that are not it's the a natural yeah. way? It's do a you,
3: massive compromise. Yeah, it's it's
2: it's a, a compromise.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, back in Bach's time, the, you would tune pianos to whatever key you were playing in. And so we've almost lost a whole uh, massive chunk of the musical language because, yeah, you could you could write a, you could have a piano that was tuned to the harmonic series of D, but play something in the yeah. key of G, for example, and it would sound slightly darker and and a bit more mysterious. Uh, but we've lost that because, of course, we've got a piano that you can play in any key, and it sounds just about right in all of them. But it's um, right. Yeah, that, I mean, it's it's an innovation and also a little bit of a kind of oh, we've lost something there. But I was uh, yeah, I was I was intrigued to see yeah whether you yeah just hit notes that were nearby or or hit or actually went for the for the whole retune. I would imagine it would make it less accessible though as a piece of music if it's if it. If well, that's a
2: that's the debate, you know. Like I I I, I mean. I tend to feel like if we had tuned it to it exactly, I feel like maybe there would have struck a chord with people that was like an un, you know, a subconscious thing that just really resonated with people, literally resonated with people, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's, you do the best you can with what, with the tools that we have as humans, you know? I mean, because the whole idea of the Fibonacci sequence and all that kind of stuff is really, it's just our way of, analyzing or understanding the universe, you know, and the universe has its own um, set of laws that we're just trying to kind of fit within. So
0: were, were there any other techniques other than the Fibonacci series that you used or any other te- techniques relating to the Fibonacci um, as, as little key moments of inspiration for the, for the tracks?
3: Um, well, I think the way that, we use some of the scale uh, to notice patterns out of that was a further uh, derivation of those harmonic patterns. For example, in track eight, one of the things you notice in the scale is what emerges is uh, major triads a half half step apart, which is something that's pretty synonymous in people's perception as perhaps Eastern sounding. So that became really prominent, for example, in track eight. And I think Every Besides the construction of the amount of players per track and the fact that the keys of the track also moved from track to track in the Fibonacci sequence, uh, I think each of us in Scott and myself, we took a little bit different roles in terms of how that happened and what we focused on. So my role was a little more on the side of introducing the musical patterns to the musicians and letting them take that and go somewhere with it. And it affected musicians, each musician a little bit differently in how they interpreted that. Some were really on the math side of it and just totally their mind expanded. I remember when Ben Furman, another pianist came in here to work, he was, it, it, it looked like he, I mean, he was just so excited to, to integrate this into his playing. Um And then there were other musicians who didn't know what it was and could pick key notes out of it and combine that with the theme of the track that was intended. And from there, something happened. And I think in retrospect, we looked back at the record and what we ended up seeing was this unintentional impact of the Fibonacci sequence in terms of how the record expands, just like the name is in Flowers Through Space, that something so small like a flower and something so gigantic uh, like a galaxy could inhabit this principle we saw this happen on the record in terms of its emotional maturity as it moved on, in terms of its just sense of grandiose, and so that was kind of it had this un, unintended impact for us, which I think we both saw as like a cool, a cool process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you, Do you
0: think there's something in the the fact that you you have when you look at a galaxy or you look at a, a, a sunflower, you, you can that they they have an intrinsic beauty to them. Do you think that do you, did, does that intrinsic beauty kind of work its way into the music because you've kind of sown the seeds, if you, if you pardon the pun, of the Fibonacci sequence within it? Do you think, um, was that the was that the goal or was it something that was a pleasant side effect?
2: Well, I think that it 100% was a pleasant side effect, but that was kind of the, really the idea of the record was that the Fibonacci sequence and and how we see it translates to the human brain as beauty. And we really wanted to see whether that beauty would translate musically. Um, and it 100% did. I mean, it guided us to places where we would have never gone musically had we not let this mathematical construct really guide us, you know? So um, it 100% translates to beauty at least in, in in my perception and so far you know with the reception of some of the songs on the record people are do resonate with it which is which is really interesting but that was the goal i guess is to see um whether that did translate Um, and it was really, really interesting. And, and, you know, there's so many different ways that you can go nuts and Fibonacci something. Fibonacci is a word that I made up while we were doing this (laughs) to to basically, to basically say, look, if we found ourselves in a creative, um, place and we we would use the word Fibonacci to be like, okay, how do we apply the formula to this particular creative decision that we need to make, you know, and you can just, you can go really, really deep with it. So, you know, it was really up to each musician and to each person as far as their role within the record as to how we do that. I mean, we went even as far as to record on dates that fell within the Fibonacci sequence. or so like the first of the month and the third and the fifth and the eighth and the 21st of the month, you know, I mean, we had a session that we had to reschedule because of a health thing and we had to wait um, for like three weeks to reschedule <laughs> it because be, it was because on the 21st. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we, we were really that, uh, um, committed to it, you know? Um, and, and, and really just sticking to that to see how it felt. And, you know, ideas would emerge with these songs where, you know, since we waited three weeks, we came up with this whole idea. Like one of the ideas was the, the pinata. We, we, I, I decided to, um, uh, to use a pinata, uh, and fill the pinata with the form of the song, Um, with index cards and on the index cards were descriptive words and poems and stuff that we were going to use for inspiration for the song and on the back of the index cards i wrote out the fibonacci sequence um, and we just sort of shoved them into a pinata and then when the band showed up that day this is for the track eight so we had eight musicians in there they each took turns banging the pinata when the pinata broke open uh the form and all the index cards fell to the ground and they took those with inde- flowers with flowers yeah <laughs> there was flowers in the pinata too but they took all those forms or all those index cards flipped them um uh, to, so they see the number of the fibonacci sequence in the back and they arranged those um Based on the Fibonacci, and then flipped them over to see all the inspirational things, like, you know, uh, and and forms for the song. And we committed to that, taped them into a row, and that was the form that we used for the song itself. So, you know, we really got deep and creative, and, and, you know, we really went for it. Um, That can really be heard on song number eight. Um, It it was, I think, song eight was like the most fun, creative, uh, most inspired. I think song that we did on the record. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you did did you record all these
0: pieces live, or were there overdubs, and uh, or is it just, or or is it all live?
3: It's all live. So yeah, Yeah, it really is, Mm -hmm. except for twenty one because of how complex it was. Right.
2: Well, twenty one. The only reason we did over overdubs on 21 is because we didn't physically have the space to fit 21 people
3: yeah
2: um with all their instruments and stuff because we had a choir and a string quartet and all that so on 21 we actually had to bring in a choir on another day to overdub that section of it but everything else was done live Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a beautiful sound
0: that you've got on that it's it's all it's so crystal clear i mean your studio is obviously a, a fantastic place did you did you go um did you go absolutely crazy and only use uh certain channels
2: on your desk <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you know what's really interesting is i didn't even think about that um aspect of the fibonacci until very recently actually i was thinking hmm. about that the other day i don't know what i was doing but i was like wait a second and i started looking at the frequency points on all the eqs and i was like oh my god there's all these like i'm looking at it now like there's all these <laughs> threes and fives and eights and you know what i mean like yeah, the channels the i could have used channel three five eight twenty one i mean you know Um, (laughs) I know I think, but but to to answer your question, I didn't, but I kind of wish I had. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe in the future I can, I can, I
3: can, uh, do something like that. I just wanted to add there based on what you were asking earlier as well, that I think for me, something that was really interesting was not being judgmental in terms of how we would implement all of these Aspects of the Fibonacci sequence because that's at first glance, it might seem a little silly. And that, that's what you were asking earlier, Matthew, sort of how, you know, how, what are all the ways you did this? And sometimes it, it's, it's something as simple as, oh, let's use this channel and this number. But even if you think, wow, what is that going to do? That inhibits you from appreciating what the result was because something it did impact, it did impact the result. So it became more of a, you know, a rule that we used in whatever way without saying, okay, that, that sounds good or not. Any way we could put the, the the pattern in there, we just looked for a, a way, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of uh, of Brian Eno, and I, I remember hearing him in an interview talking about how like just putting massive restrictions is actually a, a lot more creative than having too many options. And so you, right. you're kind of stepping into that world, aren't you? By by restricting yourself in various bizarre ways, you actually step into a much more creative space.
2: One hundred percent. I completely agree with that. You know, I mean, part of the the reason um, we work the way we do is to kind of create some sort of uh, um, a map or like um, restrictive ways of doing things so that you can really focus in. So, you know, if you put your if you put sort of limitations, you can really kind of focus in on the things that you're allowed to do and, and kind of explore the open space within those Within those spaces, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas before you might have just brushed it off, you're like, well, now I gotta work with this. You know, like if we're like, hey, you can only use one microphone for the whole album, you (laughs) know, that's gonna open up all kinds of possibilities that you never would have even thought of. Yeah. What if on
3: on track five, you could, you you can only have five mics or something, you know, right. You know what I mean? And,
2: and you're going to then move new musicians to different parts of the room. You're going to have them play differently, you know, louder and softer in certain parts, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, absolutely. Um, it's, it's such a great way to work and and such a great way to kind of like discover corners of creativity that you never have seen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've always thought it'd be quite good if you if you had a bunch of really nice mics and and you uh, put them in some form of array that was where the measurements all added up to some Fibonacci sequence or golden ratio, and I wonder what I wonder what that wow. would sound like in terms because you, you're obviously hitting all those kind of phase points, but you may be hitting them oh, in, yes. a, in a wow. kind of sensitive way. A spiral. Yeah, you know, that's,
2: that's, that's really interesting. And I'm like, so wishing I had gone that far <laughs> to like set up the mics in those types of positions. That's so, that's super interesting.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's something I'm going to look into yeah. actually. Like there's a lot of math, I think involved in that, you know, Yeah, <laughs> and then how the, how the room reacts to the frequencies and right. And, and yeah, the phase shifting and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. that's, that's, uh that is fascinating. So, you know, if you ever do that, Definitely hit me up. Oh, yeah. I'd love to know. Well, I would <laughs> love to know. Yeah,
0: I might. I might. Something you can. I might get the students. You can do to in a do class. It. Yeah, exactly. I might yeah. get the students to do it. So, um, were there other other kind of overarching uh, influences other than other than the numbers? So, so, for example, you've got this flowers through space theme. Was was flowers or space or any of, or kind of any other external things an
2: influencer on the on the music? I mean, space in general is definitely an influence um, because of the uh, how mystifying it is. You know, like for me, musically, I'm always trying to achieve a feeling. I'm always trying to achieve something that is grander uh, or grandiose. You know, something that is larger than than myself or the musicians. You know, sort of losing yourself in the music. You know, and so um, I, I I I get that sort of celestial feeling um from flowers you know if you if you're just kind of sitting on a beautiful sunny day and the breeze is going and you know you're you're just kind of sitting there and you can just look at the flowers sort of gently moving um that feeling is what i'm trying to capture uh in, in music um so as far as external influences absolutely you know i mean i think the universe um, everything that, that implies, uh, creatively is 100%, um, influencing everything that, that we're doing, you know, the, the whole idea of the record and the whole way that I make music is literally to try to achieve a feeling, um, of, uh, of, uh, oneness, I guess with the universe. So I am not sure if that answers your question, but yeah.
0: no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely does. Um, well we, i mean we we actually have a space playlist that we we, we have as part of the show in fact we we have got two currently one that <laughs> one that uh, uh our guests uh offer tracks some of them some of them better than others uh, and uh, a whole list of ones that we've come up with ourselves as well flex tones actually ca- came on quite recently which was a bit of a coincidence oh, okay. um but the uh the uh, uh, it, have you got any have you got any space-related tracks? Any any kind of uh, music that you yourself are uh, hugely Im- influenced by or, or listen to and go, oh my god, that's an amazing! And you're not allowed to have David Bowie or or, or the obvious <laughs> ones.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I will say that David Bowie is an influence, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to break the rule because
3: you know uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: that- there is something there. There is something absolutely amazing. You've about- worked
3: with David Bowie.
2: I, I worked re- briefly with David Bowie, but. Uh, there is something absolutely amazing about the celestialness of David Bowie's music. And, you know, the last album that he made black star, uh, I think is a beautiful space record. Uh, I mean, and I'm not talking about like, you know, the, the classic Bowie space stuff, but I'm talking about black star this last record. is just like a beautiful jazz, like Anthem, uh, sort of, um, um, goodbye to the to the world you know and in in a launching pad for his wherever that wherever he is now it's like a launching yeah. pad and for him
3: jason lindner's on that record who's kind of maybe like a distant yeah. cousin of yours which is
2: interesting yeah <laughs> maybe
3: i, I mean, that's not a fact jason but Liners, uh, he kind of looks like piano you. yeah yeah
2: yeah it's <laughs> same last but, name <laughs> yeah people are always wondering if i'm jason you know uh jason lindner's brother um but other um space records. Um, you know, Tool, I think, would be a perfect example of sort of celestial, sort of
3: feeling-type uh, music. Mm.
2: I mean, what do, you got? what do you
3: got? It's it's hard. It, like, space is one of those broader things that um, are, are just so influential, I think, as a kid and just a concept. Uh, it's It's hard for me, to be honest, to really pinpoint, like, a specific artist that represents space for me. I think it's just something that it's it's just like a concept, you know. Is that how you feel? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, you know,
2: there's definitely artists that sort of evoke the uh, space feeling. I would say that Radiohead Kid A, especially the first track on that record, is very celestial to me. Um, let me see. I mean, these
0: are good. I'm I'm, I'm going to have to check because I, I'm I don't think Black Star is on the, the the uh playlist so I, I i that's that's going straight on as is as is tool i'm actually enjoying their last album so uh I, yeah I, absolutely 100
2: yes yeah, so yeah. i
0: will uh i will i'll try and find a, a tool track that uh that stands out but i know i know exactly what you mean there's a it, in some ways it's always a little bit dis- disappointing if an artist is too didactic about what what they're trying to tell you and, it, and and sometimes yes when it's when it's a little bit more of an ethereal space feel it's somehow more satisfying
2: isn't it another one i would mention is mozart's requiem oh yeah
3: hmm.
2: yeah that's <laughs> there's there's something about that that feels like you know transcending or you know lifting up through the cosmos
3: you know what you know what always hit me in that when i was a kid uh the band planet x i mean it's much heavier and much more fusiony but it was led by Derek Sherinian, a keyboardist, and this stuff was really, it was very spacey to me. I mean, the, the melodies that he chose, like a lot, a lot of use of, you know, Lydian with real sort of like crunchy, uh, you know, polyrhythms underneath it and stuff. It, was, it wasn't the celestial sort of smooth. It was more like the rocky, this place is freaking crazy side of space. And I always loved that stuff when I was a kid. So for, I, I would put my vote to the first Planet X record, which was Derek Shrinian's. I, th- I think it was a solo album of his, like his first one. That's what I would put in there. Wow! Well, I'm also going to throw in. I'm also going to throw in King
2: Crimson. Oh King yeah! King Crimson <laughs> Islands Islands uh, is one of my favorite records, and that is super futuristic or uh, a cosmic. Yeah. Because then I was also going to add Can uh, Future Days, which is a, a, another album that uh, hopefully presents itself on the playlist can future days very very yes, spacious yes. wow
0: yeah. the, 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 these are great these are great the, the only one i haven't heard i think is the planet x one so i'll i'll go i'll go and check that out but yeah you're you're hitting all the right or all, all, all my buttons there that's <laughs> great <laughs> so we've obviously nice. got pretty similar taste in music um so is there so so the, the album comes out today and um have you got any plans of coming over to europe and and uh, and promoting it or what's the best way of consuming the album
2: well i don't have any plans of coming to to europe although i'd love to my brother actually lives in london um, but so hopefully i'll make uh i was actually born in london too believe it or not uh. yeah <laughs> um but um um you know the best way to consume it is is to just stream it like anything else you know um if you go on to all streaming platforms um you can you can stream the record right now actually it's out um and you know if you want to see the crazy cast of characters you can go to uh Bandcamp or Tidal will have credits uh Bandcamp has a nice list of the credits cuz the the some of these musicians on the, on the record are just outrageous like really good just unbelievable new york based sort of jazz guys you and know you, and,
3: and, and girls and you can see everyone in per- or uh, visually, when the documentary comes out. Yeah, we also did a full-length documentary, uh,
2: which we just had a screening for last night at the Soho House here in Manhattan. But um, it's the uh, it's a full-length documentary about the process and about the making of the record. And that's its own beast, that uh, its own art piece uh, that's going to be coming out, um, which hopefully uh, within the summer or the fall of this year. Uh, do, do you know what sort of platforms that will be on? Uh, I don't know yet. Right now, we're we're going around to different festivals and showing it, and uh, starting to do the screenings and stuff. And then, uh, so it's to be determined.
0: Well, if you find yourself if you find yourself in Europe, maybe we can have a screening at the uh, college. I think it'd be something that would be really really cool, and you can give a little speech beforehand.
2: That would be amazing.
0: I would love that. I, absolutely, Thank you. Well, thanks very much for thanks very much for coming on the show. And, and uh, um,
2: the one thing I'd like to add is, you know, to, to you know maybe just plug a little bit is to uh, check out Infinity Gritty. It's the label um, that is releasing the record, and this is Adam sitting next to me, Adam Ahuja. He's releasing the record on his label, um, and you can check out his music as well, Adam Ahuja music. Um, and other than that, you know, not much. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Been my pleasure. I'll let you get on with your day and, and record some cool music. I'm in Paris right now, Matt, and
1: I'm, I'm going for some meetings, but on my way home, back to the hotel, I'm going to listen to In Flowers Through Space. Nice. By E. Scott Lindner. So excellent stuff. Cheers. Cheers for that. And, um, yeah, listen to, it on, listen to it on all good music services. Out now.
0: So that's it. Spodcats, thanks very much for supporting the show, and you are absolute legends. I've got to apologise to the Spodcats a little bit, Jamie, because I'd uh, why
1: well, what have you done?
0: We should have kept them more informed about the 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 Science Museum gig, but I didn't want to let it slip just in case it didn't happen, and then it was all out, and then, exactly. then I felt then I thought there's still plenty of time, but. We'll make it up to them. For the two hundredth show, the spodcats are definitely gonna be involved. We've got to sort that out. So let's do it. When's the two hundredth show, Matt? I don't know. I, I think it's sometime in September I'm gonna work it out and then and then next week we'll have details. I think after I've told it's going the to Spodcats first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, righty, Matt, what are you up to now? I've got to do a bit of marking and then I've gotta go make my way to this space conference
1: well you have a good day Mm -hmm. and i'll i'll speak to you soon okay then jamie bye bye guys bob see you soon bye